You're listening to the weekly teaching podcast of Beaverton Christian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. We hope that what you hear today inspires you to laugh, question, think, and grow. If you'd like to connect with us even further, hit us up online at beaverton.cc or send us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. This series is called Under Pressure because you and I are constantly living in the midst of a world gone wrong. Everything goes badly. We'll talk more about this in later weeks, but Jesus wants us to know that because our world is broken, right? And it's been broken by our desire to do our thing, not God's thing. That produces pressure. You can do things right and things still fall apart. You can try your best and things not work out. And this produces fear and anxiety and troubles. And how we handle those demonstrates not just our faith, but whether or not we're going to just cope or we're going to thrive living the life God calls us to. Now, I don't know if you know this, but no matter how hard you try and when things break down, you're faced with an opportunity to do what feels good, right? To do what feels comfortable or to do something that is profitable. And when we run to Jesus with brokenness, hurt, and pain, he actually knits us together with his spirit in ways that can accomplish things for his kingdom in the midst of the brokenness. Jesus is making all things new and he invites us to join him in that process as he makes us new. New things happen in us and new things happen through us. So in this series, Under Pressure, we're gonna look at the ways that our coping strategies, right, which keep us alive, aren't enough because they don't shape us in good ways. They don't make us more like Christ. They don't fill us with his spirit to accomplish his good things. They numb us, isolate us, and leave us struggling. And so in today's story, we're going to see someone who is faced with the overwhelming power of fear, and they have a choice to make. Are they going to lean into God? Or are they going to lean into the things that they would use to cope? Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but fear has a power. Fear has a power that takes hold of us and causes us to do what it wants. And when we do, we fall prey. And that falling prey to fear comes from the human capacity for jumping to conclusions. You and I fill in the blanks of what we don't know with what we have previously experienced. We don't know what we're looking at. We will go, what have I seen before? And how should I let this inform the decision? Now, this can be helpful, right? But it can also be extremely prejudicial. If you're engaging with someone or a situation or a product that you've never used before, you might think you know how to engage based on your previous experiences. Now, these prejudices that come from jumping to conclusions oftentimes play right into the hands of the people who are counting on them. And by that, let me tell you this, the animal kingdom is counting on you jumping to conclusions because humans are so good at jumping to conclusions. This, which looks like a bird dropping on a leaf, is actually not a bird dropping. That waxy sheen and the black and white color pattern It's a moth, right? And it's quite spectacular when its wings are out. But the moth is counting on you having experienced a bird dropping, not being interested at all in a bird dropping, seeing it and just continuing to walk right on past. That's how it survives. 
I love, um, I, love, I love going under the sea and seeing all the creatures you can see under the sea. And I'm always like, man, I wish I could see an octopus. And people always jump in the water. There's an octopus right there. I can never see it. My friend Gary is like, no, no, you're always seeing octopus. You just don't know that you are. You think you're looking at kelp, but you're not. You're seeing an octopus. And the octopus's ability to not just change color, but to change its texture to match its environment is a demonstration that it's counting on you believing you know what you're looking at and acting accordingly. It wants you to jump to a conclusion that will allow it to live. And fear does this. Fear wants you to jump to a conclusion and engage in a coping mechanism so that you will try to escape the pressure that you're under. And the truth is, we can't see the end beyond all doubt. We don't know what is actually going to happen. And we aren't powerful enough to stop things. So when we believe we can see the end beyond all doubt and we have the power to change things, we begin falling prey to fear and our enemy, the spiritual enemy we have, Satan, and people who hate us, who bring fear against us to get what they want from us. And in today's story, we're going to see this take place. We're going to see coping mechanisms on display, and we're going to see that when we draw near to God, when we come to him, he gives us his comfort. He engages us in self-care, and he grows us to be able to face the problems that come into our life. So here's what you need to know about our passage in 1 Kings chapter 19. It takes place a couple thousand years ago during a time when the people of Israel, their kingdom has been broken into two. There's two competing kings. And these competing kings are trying to line up people to do what they want to do. You see, the people of Israel had made an agreement with God when they left slavery in the land of Egypt. They'd come to Mount Sinai where Moses had gone up onto the mountain of God. He had brought back the commandments. And God said, if you will be my people and you will follow my commandments, I will provide for you always, regardless. So the people engaged in this covenant, but they got tired of doing things God's way, started doing things their way. This is something you and I do, even when it doesn't even have anything to do with God. Sometimes I take a different way home from work just because I want to stop at Dairy Queen. Now, into this scenario, the people were like, hey, we're going to start doing our own thing. And when they set down God's laws, there was no objective standard for people to live to and no God for them to worship. So they began doing everything they felt like doing. And one of these competing kings, his name is Ahab. Ahab decides he's going to consolidate power and defeat the other king. So he marries a woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel is a princess from another kingdom. And now he has access to the strength of that kingdom due to the marriage. That queen, Jezebel, imports all of her false gods, her idols, and her prophets and priests into the kingdom. And they begin leading the people astray. But because God loves his people and he made a covenant with them that he is not going to break, he begins sending his prophets to the people. And the prophets are these holy men and women who are dedicated to God, hearing his voice and calling people to obey him. And one of these prophets, a man named Elijah, hears from God and decides they're going to have a contest. He invites all of the prophets the false prophets of the false God up onto a mountain where they're each going to make an altar. They're going to put a sacrifice on the altar, but they're not going to light a match because they don't have matches back then. They're going to pray. And in praying, they're going to ask God to send fire down on the altar. The gods that answer by fire will be the victors and the losers will be executed for treason. 
And sure enough, God, the God we worship, answers Elijah's prayer, burns up the altar. Elijah executes the prophets. And this is where we pick up our story after a tremendous victory in 1 Kings 19, starting in verse one, it says this. When Ahab, that's the king, when he got home, he told Jezebel, that's his wife, everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all of the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow, I have not killed you just as you killed them. Ahab goes back. Now, this is a power couple, Ahab and Jezebel. But in the power couple, the real power is Jezebel. She doesn't just have control of the army. She doesn't just have control of the wealth of the kingdom. She's also an evil sorceress. So in Disney terms, we're not talking about like a wicked stepmother. We're talking about Maleficent. When you mess with her, you're messing with all the powers of hell. She says, I know what you did and I am coming for you. You might be able to relate to this. You ever had somebody out to get you? Somebody out to ruin your life? Maybe because you did what was right. Maybe you enforced a boundary with a family member. Maybe you stood up to someone who was bullying someone else. Maybe you did what was right at work and other people didn't join in and now they look at you like you made them look bad. Maybe it's a neighbor and you've got a dispute over something about property. Whatever it is, you did what was right. You can look at what they're going to do about it. You can see that they're gonna cause you harm and you don't like it because it produces fear and you know the power that they do have. And this is when we jump to conclusions that no matter who God is and how good God is, this person's terrible plan for my life might be greater. And this is what we see happen to Elijah. It says this in verse three, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. Some of us are, are freeze people when we get scared. Some of us are flee people when we get scared. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. And he sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Elijah jumps to the conclusion that there's nothing he can do. So he runs. And in running, his response to this pain is isolation. This is something we do as humans all the time. We get upset, we get frustrated, we get angry, and we want to withdraw and be alone. And when we withdraw and we're alone, we start thinking about the problem. And if we can't solve it, we become fixating on the problem. And all of that isolation leads to desolation. Desolation is feeling miserable. Look at what it says. He sits down alone under a broom tree. And just so you guys know, a broom tree is not like a big, like Lion King tree. It's just a little desert shrub. He's laying in the dirt under a shrub, wishing he were dead. Desolation. When we believe we know the end beyond all doubt and we know that we are not as powerful as the problem we're looking at and we think it's all up to us, we will run, we will hide and we will, under pressure, fear will begin 
having its way with us. It's important to note that in this moment, Elijah is placing his faith in Jezebel and her ability to ruin his life. But who is it that has caused him to be alone, miserable, and hiding? He has. He's actually given power over himself. And evil is winning because he is participating with it. We can relate. You ever been so comprehensively exhausted from difficulty that you just feel like giving up? That's when the depression sets in. But what if God loves you and he actually wants to provide for you? He wants to care for you. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to defeat what has come for you. because it's in these desolate places that God meets us. It says this in verse five. Then he lay down and he slept under the broom tree, exhausted, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And so he ate and he drank and he lay down again. some really important details in this part of the story that I want us to to really think about, right? The, The first part is this, right? Many of us feel like we cannot face what is going on around us because we are exhausted. In the consecutive world wars, the United States military discovered something really specific, right? That morale, morale always drops when people are terrified and exhausted, General Patton, a hero of World War II, he said a lot of crazy things, but he also said some smart ones. This one right here, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Some of us are here today and we're thinking we don't have what it takes because we are exhausted. I want you to notice that God meets Elijah supernaturally in his exhaustion because he is going to encourage him. He's going to pour his courage into Elijah. Notice that it says that the bread was fresh baked on hot stones when he wakes up. To this day in the Near East, when people make bread, specifically Bedouin people, they'll mix up the batter and then they cook up a fire and they put it right on the stone and it makes the the bread, a flat bread, hot. And it says that the water came in a jar, right? Maybe that's a ceramic jar or that's a stone jar. God could have provided some stale crusty bread and a goatskin bag of water. But water from an animal skin is the same temperature as the air outside. Water from a ceramic or stone jar is cold. Hot bread, cold water. There is a level of comfort that God is providing to his servant, Elijah. I will meet your needs and I will do it in a way that demonstrates that I care for you. These details are in the text because God wants us to understand he doesn't just want to give us what we need. He wants to give us the things that will speak to our hearts, that will encourage us, that will raise up our morale. And he does this miraculously by an angel, right? Angels are messengers from God. They're supernatural beings. None of you will die and become an angel. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
They're messengers who come from God bringing pronouncements, right? We see this with Mary. The angel tells her about Jesus. They bring protection. We see this with the angel of the Lord. They bring provision. That's what we see here. God divinely reaches into this scenario to begin caring for Elijah. The angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave where he spent the night. Some really important things I want to point out in here about self-care, right? Self-care is very important. Self-care is important to people who are following Jesus. You should never be ashamed or embarrassed or feel guilty about self-care, right? God provides the food and he provides the water, but Elijah still has to make the choice to sleep and to eat and to drink. He has to interrupt the pattern of his life and receive what God has provided for him. And I want you to know that self-care is different than self-indulgence. Self-care is done for the purpose of journeying to meet with God. Self-indulgence is done to try to cope, to numb ourselves, to remove ourselves, to not have to deal with the problems or the pressures that we're thinking about, to meet with God, to engage with him. And we're going to see what God wants with Elijah here. It takes our full capacities, right? So if you think I'm going to get into the hot bubble bath and drink a jug of wine, or I'm going to smoke this huge fat blunt, or I'm going to eat all of this ice cream, whatever it is that you think, you are not going to be in the headspace to have a great engagement with God. Self-indulgence is trying to solve our problem our way by distancing ourselves from it, by numbing ourselves to the difficult feelings of it, and it doesn't do anything to grow and strengthen us to deal with what's going on, we don't hear what God is asking us to do. It decreases us while our problem increases instead of going to God who is going to increase us because he's going to have us deal with the problem. This is so important for us to recognize because a coping strategy will keep you alive, but you will never thrive when you are dependent on your coping strategy. God says, I want you to come to me And we know this because he's headed to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. This is where the covenant was made. This is where he sent the law down the mountain with Moses. And it's going to take how long to get there? 40 days and 40 nights. Where have we heard this before in the scriptures? Noah in the ark. For 40 days and 40 nights, God provided for and cared for Noah in the ark. God is sending a very clear message. Come to me and I will provide for you just like I have faithfully provided for every person who has ever come to me under pressure. This is a bad situation that Elijah is in, right? But it's nowhere near a cataclysmic flood where everyone you know is about to die. If I was with Noah then, I will be with you now. If God was with Elijah then, he is with us now. He will provide for us. The Lord said to him, what are you doing here? So God asks Elijah, tell me what's up. And Elijah has the opportunity to engage 
with God in faith to take his problems to him. And I want you to see what Elijah does, right? Elijah begins talking about what his problems are. Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. You've been in a situation like this before, right? Where you have resentment and hurt and bitterness because you've done it right and it didn't work out. You did what God asked you to do. You did things the right way. I've... You guys, this is my whole life, right? This is my job. Things don't work out for me. And you know what I'm tempted to think every time? I work and I slave and I pray and I talk to people and I'm doing this and you're out there telling people about you and this is the thanks I get. (laughs) Right, and what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, right, I do it all for you, your way, and it's not working out for me. Did you hear it? Because we can't hear it when we say it ourselves, but we hear it when other people say it. Hey, I did all this for me. Jesus makes it really clear. It's not gonna work out for us 100% in this lifetime. All throughout the Bible, book of Hebrews, right? All of these people lived by faith, enduring all these difficulties, and none of them received what they were hoping for in this life. Some of what God promises only comes in the next. Perfect union with him, perfect blessing from him. So thinking that we're gonna build the perfect nation, the perfect community, the perfect home, the perfect marriage, and then we're gonna find all of our satisfaction in our home, nation, community, and marriage is idolatry. We're gonna find our satisfaction in Jesus only, mediated by God's Holy Spirit. So maybe take it a little bit easy on yourself when your marriage isn't what you want it to be. When your kids don't do what you say, your satisfaction is going to come in Jesus Christ. Perfection is going to come later. We can relate to this kind of resentment. And I want you to know that God asked him to share it, and he did. The Bible is filled with all manner of people pouring their tears and their fears out to God. And guess what? He's cool with it. Hannah was terrified she was going to die childless. She went to the tabernacle, poured out her heart. Everyone thought she was drunk. That's how willing to be undone she was before God. God met her. David's got like 20 Psalms where he writes, and I hate this guy, and I wish I could kill this guy and his kid. Make sure you don't forget that dude. He's terrible, God. God's like, tell it to me. so many things we're scared of. We're so scared we won't speak them out loud. We're scared that if we are honest with God, if we're transparent and vulnerable with him, that he will punish us, will face his wrath. The truth is that's how we grow in intimacy with God. It relieves the stress and the pressure. We give it to him because he is all-knowing and all-powerful and he can do something about it. We can't. So to hold on to it is to burn ourselves out. To hand it to him is what he's asking us to do. And then listen to this one, right? But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. These are his friends, right? I'm the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. 
know what's really interesting about these passages here? These ones are really essential for us to grasp because this isn't stuff that has been done to him. It's stuff he fears will happen to him that have been done to other people, but it has exhausted and wearied and worried him. And I think it's important for us to identify and acknowledge that evil is painful, even when we don't experience it, just when we watch it. And this is something we don't want to engage with. We want to keep things at a distance because there's enough pain in our own life that we don't want to feel it for other people. But that's what empathy is. It's when we feel someone else's pain with them. And that's what's on display here. He's seeing injustice. He's seeing unfaithfulness. How did you feel when your parents got divorced? When that covenant was broken? It grieves us, doesn't it? Okay, so what about, what about someone being mistreated for the color of their skin or their, their gender or fill in any of the prejudicial blanks that we use against other people. It should overwhelm us, break our hearts. We should feel that pain and it should drive us to respond. But we don't want to feel it. So we remove ourselves and sit at a distance and, and we think, I sure hope they figure it out. It's going to be rough. Good thing it didn't happen to me. I've got enough of my own, not my circus, not my clowns. I think it's super important for us to recognize God wants us to take our pain to him, the pain of what we've experienced, the pain of what we witness. He wants us to take it to him because until we give it to him, we're not gonna be able to do something about it in a healthy way because all of our prejudices drive us to act out of our own pain and our own anger. And when we try to stop pain and anger with our own pain and anger, we just make things worse. We tear at the fabric of the justice God wants to see done. And if we don't go to God, we jump to our own conclusions and we live out of our own pains and we create new disasters. You ever had someone who is clearly evil try to ruin your life because they hate you? So you go after them? I was recently trying to go up the stairs. I, by the way, there's an unwritten rule about stairs, right? Married people. Something needs to go upstairs, but you're not going upstairs. You put it at the foot of the stairs. The next person going up has to take it. That's the rule. And if you, you break that rule, God be with you, Ignacio. I hate this rule. I've worked most of my adult life to try to remove this rule for the obvious danger reasons. It's stairs. You can't pile up things on stairs. People are going to hurt themselves. The other day, I'm trying to go up the stairs in my house. It's a little bit dark. I trip on these boxes. Boom, immediately inflamed, irate, enraged. I need to find my wife and reprimand her and begin to enact legislation to make sure nobody finds themselves in this danger again. You know why? Because I'm not yet old enough to get that discount on the Life Alert medical system. And if I fall in the dark... That ain't happening here, folks. So I get the light switch on, right? It's a box of like Lego and sneakers. That's not my wife's stuff, just so you guys know. That's all me. That didn't stop me from immediately assuming who the problem was, who needed to be persecuted, and how we needed to work to make changes to suit me. I don't need to change. Everyone else needs to change because I'm righteous and everybody else is terrible. 
That's how quickly we jump to it. And that's the sign someone hasn't taken their pain to God and they're now moving out of his holiness and healing. You go to God, you receive healing and strength from the Lord. You won't have to create new disasters. You will have grace and mercy and truth to work for justice. God hears all of this. And here's his response, right? God says, go out and stand before me on the mountain. So Elijah comes out of the cave, right? And the Lord told him, well, the Lord told him to come out of the cave and he does. You got to obey. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. All of these massive demonstrations of God's power, but God's not in them. Look where God is. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. We whisper because we want to draw people closer. God's response to calling Elijah closer was to come near to Elijah. God demonstrates his great power. But now he's going to tell Elijah his plan. Do you believe that God is good? He has all the power in the world and he wants to use it to help you. Because if so, you will come close to him and you will want to meet with him to listen to his still small voice. Because he loves and cares for you. He desires that intimacy with you. He wants you to take your problems to him, not to anything else. And when we engage in this way, he begins pouring his strength and his courage into into us because he's actually not gonna tell us to hide. He's got a plan for you, a role for you to play in his kingdom. When he works in you, he wants to work through you. And the Lord told him, go back the same way you came. Travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be the king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, the grandson of Nimshi, to be the king of Israel. And anoint Elisha to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu. And those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Some of this makes about as much sense as trying to watch an episode of The Lord of the Rings right in the middle. There's a lot of names and a lot of places. But this map will help you understand what's going on at this point in time in history, right? There's Israel right there. That's the kingdom that there's competing kings. And to the north, there's a kingdom called Aram with its capital in Damascus. This country exists today as Syria. And at this time in history, it was the regional power. They had wealth, they had influence, they had weapons, they had money, and the people of Israel are terrified of them. They're so terrified that they have engaged in basically an extortion scheme where they pay for their own freedom. Ahab and Jezebel have paid the king of Aram. They have a deal with him. And God says, hey, I got to clear up some things for you, Elijah. I am still at work. I am working a plan. And I want you to go back and I want you to appoint a new king in Aram. 
That new king is going to invade. And I want you to appoint a competing king in Israel. And anyone who escapes the invasion will be taken care of by the new king. And anyone who escapes the new king will be taken care of by your protege, the prophet who will replace you. And there are 7,000 people who have never worshiped the false God. You're not alone. I'm working a plan. You can trust me. I'm putting my courage in you so you can play a role in what I'm doing. And remember, God does not need Elijah to do any of this. He already sent fire from heaven to win the first contest. And he's got all, the ma- all manner of wind. He's got earth, wind, and fire at his disposal that he just showed him. There is a story we tell ourselves when fear takes hold and it makes perfect sense to us and it seems like truth to us, but it's filling in the blanks with details from the past that don't love us and don't care for us and it drives us to cope. But God wants more than that for us. If you're not talking to God and you're not talking to his people, then the story you're telling yourself isn't true. It's fear driving you, corrupting you breaking your mind, discouraging you, driving you to a coping mechanism. It's not what God wants for you. See, God calls us to himself because he wants to reveal himself. This is who I truly am. You don't have to live in fear of being honest with me. Tell me everything that's going on. I will hold that for you and I will give you rest. So run to him. When you are frustrated, when you are finding yourself in difficulty, when you have been wronged, when somebody did it wrong and they got the win and you did it right and you got the L, you run to him because he wants you to rest in him. He wants to encourage you. He wants to pour his truth and his spirit into you to strengthen you because he loves you. God sends us back. And let's be honest, this is the number one reason we don't run to him because God is gonna send us back and he's gonna send us back with a correct understanding of himself. So rest in him. Remember how I said earlier that some of us, we freeze and some of us, we flee when we get scared. There's a third category. That's the knives out category. That's fight. You know who I'm talking about. If the person in your row is looking at you right now, that's you. Things go wrong, you fight. You do it under your own strength. We just got to work a little harder. We got to do it a little more. They're going to do this to me. Well, wait till you see what I do to them. We are the people who don't like to rest in him. We like to think, no, 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 I'll work. Then I'll rest, right? I'll, I'll, I'll get enough money and I'll get enough resources, time, accrue enough vacation days, then I'll rest in him. Then I'll take my break. I'll deal with it later. Elijah didn't earn the bread. He didn't earn the water. He didn't earn the time. He just stopped running and God provided for him. God provides for us when we stop. That's what trusting him is. I need to take a break and trust that he will care for me. So we rest in him. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And lastly, God sends us back with a better understanding of ourselves. We are correct to measure situations, ourselves against the situation and see that we can't do it. 
But instead of running away, we need to run to God because he can do it. And when we see ourselves correctly, that's when we respond to him in obedience. Elijah listens to God. Oh yeah, I don't have what it takes. Jezebel is bad news, but God is better news and I'm gonna do what he asks. And he does everything God asks him to do. God strengthens him, sends him back into the fight and then God solves it. God grows him. We get the joy of playing a role in the kingdom that God is making. Seeing the world now as it is already in heaven. And when we're willing to do that, that's when we'll obey. So many of us struggle to obey because we don't run to him, we don't rest in him, so we don't obey him. Instead, we're trying to work our plan in our strength or some version of his plan in our strength. Can't happen. Doing it that way exhausts us. And it's not the way Jesus did it and it's not what he asked us to do. Look at this, it says, then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary, Carry heavy burdens and I will give you, you under pressure, come to me. Take my yoke, my weight upon you and let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. It's a lack of humility and it's a lack of gentleness that causes us either to run or to just grovel. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. If you are not experiencing this, you're carrying a burden that wasn't given to you by Jesus that you can't do on your own. It can't be done under your own strength and you have to let go of. You have to take it to him. You gotta weep it out. You gotta grieve it out. You gotta set it down. You gotta tell him he's responsible for it. And you gotta listen to his still small voice tell you what to do. And in those moments, you will find the strength to obey because it's gonna come from him. That's how Jesus lived his life on earth. It's how Jesus died his death on earth. He listened to the Father. He took time to rest in him. He moved out and did only the things that the Father told him to do. And he was raised again to new life. If you want to live the life Jesus called you to, walk through the valley of the shadow of death the way Jesus did and raise again to new life by God's Spirit, you will do things the way Jesus did. Run to him. Rest in him and respond to him in obedience. Let's pray. Father, we, we trust you. And I pray that you would give us the faith to come to you when we are feeling the pressure, God. Give us the hope that comes from your provision, your protection, God. Help us to surrender and see life by your spirit because of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.